mission. We talk about lifting up his name and glorifying God. And one of the primary ways we do that is living on mission for him. It was so important. Jesus talked about at the end of every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And it's at the very beginning of Acts as well, the mission that we're to be on. And we're going to be talking about that over the next four weeks. And so if you're here for the first time today, I challenge you to be with us over the next four weeks at least and just get a glimpse of what God's mission is for us as followers of Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray for us and then we'll jump into the message. Let's pray. Father, we come humbly before you because we recognize that we're different than you, that you're holy and righteous and God, and we're not, and we're creators, we're, cre- we're creatures, and uh, we're humbled by that. Uh, we're limited in our thoughts and our physical abilities and all those things, and you're not, and so we trust you, and we depend upon you. Will you guide us? Will you guide us even in these moments we share together? Will you speak into each person's heart today? Will you touch people's lives with words that I won't even say? Will you speak to their hearts In these moments, as we have this conversation from your word, will you please, uh, by the power of your spirit, dynamically change hearts and lives? I pray if there's anyone that needs to begin a faith journey with you today in a relationship with Jesus, that today would be the day they do that. And for those that have been wavering in their relationship or have been in a dry spell or a pit spiritually, God, that you'd pull them out, that you'd grab them out of that, you'd break sin, that you'd reconcile relationships, you'd do whatever it is that you desire to do today as these words are spoken. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. How many of you have ever uh, planned a trip before? Uh, you think about maybe a camping trip, a backpacking trip, maybe it was your honeymoon, perhaps you're getting ready to send somebody off to college next year, so you're going to plan some college trips, so you go and visit different places, whatever it is. You probably know what it's like to plan some sort of trip. And one of the things I learned about my wife when we first got married a little over 12 years ago is that she loves to travel. Now, when we first got married, we had no money. In fact, we were negative. <laughs> we owed money to the college that we had graduated from, and I was a youth pastor, so we weren't exactly rolling it in, and she was a nurse. She worked third shift. And she'd go off to work at night, which is a unique time. And she'd come home in the morning, and she'd tell me all these trips she had been on while she was at work. She had this wonderful invention she was using. Maybe you've heard of it called the World Wide Web. (laughs) And she would go to places vicariously in her mind, like Martha's Vineyard or Paris or things like that, which I thought was wonderful because then I didn't pay for them. But it was great that she was able to have that. And what she really realized, though, in doing that was it was a lot like planning a trip. Because she'd look at all the places we'd eat if we went there, or the, the way that people would live and talk and do different things, whatever it was that it was like. But it's not quite the same as actually taking the trip. Now that we've been married for about 12 years, we've been able to go on some different trips. We were talking about some of them. This morning you saw we'd sent out some folks to Africa. They don't know what it's like to be there until they actually go. And one of the things we learned was that you don't know what the trip is like until you actually go on the journey. And we were talking about one trip that we took with a a group, a church that we went with um, when we were in Dallas, Texas, before we ever came here. We were overseas for about, I I don't remember if it was 10 or 14 days, but it was long enough that we really wanted to be home when we landed back in the States. And we landed in New York City, and we were about to miss our flight. And they told us, there's no way you're going to make it. And I don't know if you've been in the New York airport or not, but it's big. And uh, they said, there's no way you can make it. I said, if we run? They said, if you run, like, really fast. And so we grabbed our stuff, got out of customs. We took off running. There was one lady on our team who wore high heels all the time. Like, it didn't matter what we were doing. And she's running through the airport, going through the thing. We're sweating and catching the door. We ditched her at security, okay? And we just went through. But, see, we wouldn't have known what that was like unless we actually went on the journey. One time we went to Italy. It was when we were done with our, our seminary experience. And we went and spent some time. We didn't, it was the unplanned trip. We decided we were just going to figure it out when we got there. <laughs> that was dumb, the no plan plan. And, and so you try and go to a, a train station where all the signs are written in Italian. And you're American, so you're single lingual, right? And everybody else is bilingual. And you're going, does anyone speak English? And they probably all do, but they're going, dumb Americans. You know, just walking around and, and trying to figure out if you even got on the right train once the train has left. It's crazy. You don't know what it's like until you're actually on the journey. Planning trips is fun, but you don't know what it's like until you actually take those trips. 
And never has that been more evident to my wife and I than the trip we took to come and plant this church. When we left Little Rock, Arkansas, the church that was training us and sending us out to come here to Raleigh, North Carolina, a place we had never lived and didn't know very many people at, and to plant a church. And what we realized was it wasn't like a normal trip. This is really a faith journey for us. And we planned it out. What happened was God planted in our heart when we were in seminary at Dallas, Texas, that we would plant a church and use some mentors and different people to speak into our lives about that. And so we decided to take that step of faith. And we went to a church called Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We spent 11 months planning this church, coming up with the websites and values and dreams and what we hoped that it would be and all those types of things. And that was all exciting. And I remember when we stood there the day, kind of like the Madagascar team at the beginning of our service, and they laid hands on us, and they prayed for us. They said, we believe in this couple, and they sent us out. But you know what the scary part was? Then we actually had to leave. <laughs> we actually had to go on the journey and come here and not know what was going to happen. If we had never gone on the journey, though, we could have had a plan. We could have had all that stuff, but we would have missed out on so many relationships. I remember when we called Jason Tovey, the college buddy of mine at the time, and said, hey, we're going to go to North Carolina. We're going to plant a church. You want to come? You want to plant with us? And he, was at a job, he had a job with like a city paycheck and all that stuff. He said, the only way you're going to get any money is you'll raise money around the country. You can't raise any in North Carolina. Here's, here's what it's going to be. And he said, yes. <laughs> oh, somebody almost as crazy as me. That's great. So we got to do that together as a friendship. I remember getting a call from a couple that we knew in Texas. And they said, we're going to move to North Carolina. We want to be a part of a church like that. And they didn't have any jobs. They didn't have anything like that. It was about six years ago this week. And we had a, a couple that uh, was in Michigan that we knew. They called us up, and they said that they were coming down here to live here. And, and the guy, actually, I, we knew each other before either one of us even knew Jesus. And now he's our executive pastor at our church. Who would have known that all this stuff would have happened if we had never gone on the faith journey? And I remember meeting many of you in the lobby. Some of you, I remember meeting you before you knew Jesus, and now you know Jesus. Others of you, I remember meeting you when you were in a dry place in your spiritual life and God used something here at this church or another relationship from somebody in a community group, different things, to reinvigorate your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's been an amazing faith journey. And today what we're going to talk about is a faith journey. And those of you who are new to Southbridge, I'm going to invite you to come on to the faith journey with us corporately. And for each one of you, I want to challenge you to think about where are you at individually in your faith journey. If you're yet to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, I hope today's the day. If you know Jesus as your Savior, I hope today is the first step and the next part of your faith journey. We're going to be in the book of Joshua this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Joshua. We're going to put verses up on the screen and whatnot, but if you don't have a Bible, we'd love to give you one. Uh, we put them at the table over here. We've got them on our connections kiosk. If you're a first-time guest, you could just ask for one. We've got some other gifts for you, but you can ask for a Bible too. And we're going to be in Joshua. It's in the Old Testament towards the beginning. You can start looking for it in Joshua chapter 3. And I'll be reading in verses 1 through 5 today, Joshua chapter 3. But like Joshua chapter 3, like every verse in the Bible, it's got context, meaning there's stuff behind it. None of these passages of Scripture happen in isolation. And so what's happening here in Joshua 3, it's very rich context. It actually goes back about 500 years to Abraham. But if we just look at the life of Joshua, who Joshua was, is Joshua was basically uh, the number one assistant to Moses. When Moses was the leader, when you read the book of Exodus and different things, that numbers and stuff that talk about Moses, Joshua was his guy that's right there with him. And, and Moses, when they're about to go into the promised land, Moses is the guy that leads the, the uh, Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, about two million people out of bondage. And then they go out into the wilderness and he sends out 12 spies. So 12, like Jason Bourne, he wasn't the only one, right? Okay, so Joshua was one of those dudes. He was like the first Jason Bourne. And he goes on a recon mission into the promised land. And he goes in there and he starts looking around. He's trying to survive, trying to figure stuff out. And there's giants in the land. There's big people, bigger than them. And there's big 
food and there's big stuff and everything's bigger there. And they come back and there's 12 spies and they give a report to Moses. And you know what Joshua says? They're big and their stuff is big and their armies are big and all, everything there is big, but our God is bigger and our God is stronger and we got this. And he's excited and he's ready to go by faith. But of the 12 spies, 10 of them say they're big, their stuff is big, we can't do this. And you know what? They started spreading that around the nation and everybody starts murmuring. And so then God disciplines them because of their lack of faith and allows them to wander through the wilderness and something that should take days to walk through for 40 years because of their lack of faith. But now Moses has died. Joshua was the leader. And God keeps speaking to Joshua up to this point in chapter 3. And you know what the theme is? Be courageous. Be strong and courageous. Not because of your skills. Not because of your abilities. Because of your God. Be where you were at then. And now he's an older man. And he's learned life lessons. He's been through the desert. And he's ready to lead his people to the next step in their faith journey. And look at what happens. Joshua chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. It says, Early in the morning, Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim, and went to the Jordan. That's a town that's about 10 miles away from the Jordan, maybe 7 miles away from the Jordan. I don't know exactly where it was at. But... And then they camped there. So it didn't take very long to get there before they crossed over. And then it says in verse 2, After three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. That's what they do for three days. And, when the, and the, the orders were this. When you see the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord your God, and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Verse 4, then you will know which way to go, since you've never been this way before. But keep a distance of about a thousand yards between you and the ark. That's about a half mile, a little bit more. And the reason why is because the ark of the covenant symbolized God, and God's different than us. And the reason why the ark goes first is because God was leading them. But he is holy, and he is righteous, and he is different, so they kept their distance. Now, it's interesting, the Ark of the Covenant is actually covered with the mercy seat. And so while it's containing his holiness and his righteousness and his mercy symbolically, the mercy seat's on top because he's gracious and he's loving. And he wants a relationship with them. And as their God, he leads them. But look at what Joshua says before all this is going to happen. Verse 5. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And here we've got these people, the people of Israel, probably about 2 million. People have died and new people have been born and all this. Probably about 2 million people. And they're at a crossroads in their faith journey. They're at a transition point. They've got to decide. And you know what it's like if you've ever been at a crossroads in your journey, in your faith journey with God. Do I really believe this stuff? Is he, belie- is he believable? Is he speaking to me? Is he directing in this way? Is he speaking as two million people going? Is he speaking to our leaders? Is this really the direction that he's leading us? Is this really what he wants us to do? And you've got all those questions running through your mind if you're one of the Israelites. And the Israelites are asking those questions. And Joshua says, prepare yourselves. Verse 5, to consecrate yourself. It means to get prepared, to set apart, to be holy, to cleanse yourself, to examine your soul, to get ready. Because every faith journey requires heart preparation. And that's our first point today. Every faith journey requires a prepared heart. You think about it, anything that you're going to do that's worth doing, anything that's significant, anything you're going to try, you've prepared for. If you're going to run a marathon, I know there's like superhuman people out there that just show up and run a marathon, right? But if you're going to run a marathon, I've got a friend who's a Marine in one of the front rows here. He's preparing for a marathon. You prepare. You practice. You run. You train for that. If you're going to have a child, you prepare for that child to come into the world. If you're going to go away to college, you get prepared for school. If you're going to, on your wedding day, you prepare for the, I remember on my wedding day, all the preparation that went into it. 
we had to figure out the guest list. We had to figure out what the invitations looked like, whether it would have the right kind of waxy paper on top of the things and all that stuff. I remember my role. My role in that, you know what it was? Yes, honey, that looks great. <laughs> but when we did premarital counseling, because we wanted more than just a wedding day, we were talking about our marriage. I had to be engaged in that. I'd be involved in that, take initiative, some of those things, and the preparation for something that would be significant. We prepare for things that, even, that aren't that significant sometimes. Just getting ready for the day. I mean, just Even coming to church, you physically prepared for things that would happen this morning. I, I think, from what I can see, I, the light's bright, but most of you look like you brushed your hair this morning and probably brushed your teeth, hopefully, <laughs> did that. For the sake of everyone else, you probably did those things. You prepared for today. We prepare for stuff all the time. But the type of preparation we're talking about here is not tactical preparation, it's not just thinking through, am I ready? You know, did I shave? Did I have the right aftershave on it? It's burning. You know, whatever the feel is with all that stuff. It's heart preparation. And you see, that's what God's doing for the people here. In Joshua chapter 3, look at verses 1 and 2. They're at this town. They've just won a battle. And they've sent some spies, just two spies this time in. And the, the question wasn't whether we can take the land. It was, give us a feel for what's happening in the hearts of those people. And they come back, and then Joshua gets up early in the morning from where they camped, leads the people there, and after three days, the officers went out through the camp. So they travel about ten miles, and then, then nothing. You see, it's easy to read over that when you're just reading a passage of Scripture. But they sat there for three days. Now imagine for a moment, try to put yourself in the story. Imagine you're one of two million Israelites, and maybe you're towards the back of the line, and you travel about ten miles, and all of a sudden everything stops. You just wait for three days before you start wondering what's happening. Have you ever been in a traffic jam before? Like a legitimate traffic? I don't mean things are going slow. I mean, it's stopped. (laughs) What do you do? First thing you do, about about three seconds, not three days, you start rubbernecking, right? Like you want to know what's going on up there. And some of you are the people that scare the rest of us. You get out of your car. And you start walking. And we think you're dangerous because you're out of the vehicle. So I don't know why, but we do. And, and, but then after a while, we start to get comfort with you. Maybe you don't look crazy or whatever. And so we start asking you, like, you know stuff we don't know. What's going on up there? You know, we don't want to get out of the car. But what's happening? And how long does that take us? We don't like to wait, do we? And, and I'll be honest with you. I, I went to uh, Walmart yesterday, and the 20 items are less line. If you were in front of me, I probably counted your groceries. Okay, I got, I got problems. They're heart problems. I got problems waiting. None of us like to wait. What do you think it was like for the Israelites? For two days, they haven't gotten an answer. No one said anything to them. The leaders haven't told them anything. They just got to this place. They've been wandering around for 40 years. <laughs> you don't think they're ready to cross? You don't think they're ready to go into the promised land? They've got a new leader now. Things have happened that God said needed to happen for these promises to be fulfilled. These promises are about 500 years old. Genesis chapter 12, land, seed, and blessing. We're ready for the land. We want to go. And God's got them there being prepared. They're waiting. I don't know what you've been waiting on God to do. I know every person here has a story, just like there were 2 million Israelites there that day. And the macro miracle, the big thing that would happen is, and spoiler alert, plug your ears if you don't want to know this, he's going to part the waters. But what's going to happen in the hearts of each one of those 2 million people? It's going to be different for each person. Each person has a different story. Each person is dealing with different things. And what's he doing in each one of those 2 million people's lives as they wait for those three days with no instruction and no guidance. Do you think any of them thought to themselves, well, the wilderness, at least it's what we know. Maybe we should go back. Oh, there's always food there. I mean, things aren't perfect. Deuteronomy talks about it as a place with scorpions and snakes and all kinds of nasty stuff. And, but at least that's what they know. 
And maybe some of them, their marriages were struggling. Maybe some of them were trapped in sin. Maybe there were different things that were taking place where they were at in their faith journey with God. And what God was going to do when he parted the sea is he was going to give them a thing that they could put the stake in the ground and say, if he can do that, then maybe I can trust him with. But he didn't want them to miss what he was about to do. And what have you been waiting on? Some of you, you've been waiting on God to do something in your heart. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel like you're in a hole spiritually. Some of you, maybe you're trapped in sin, and and you get victory for like a week, and then you go back, and you keep doing it over and over again. And and, and you're at a place where, am I going to actually trust God with this? Am I going to willpower myself out of this? Can I do this? And, And you keep failing. Some of you have been asking God to do a miracle, maybe in your marriage, maybe with a child, maybe with some other relationship, or you've been wanting somebody's heart to be changed, something to take place in their life. Some of you have been praying about health, some of you have been praying about various things, and God's got you at a place where you're just waiting. And maybe what God wants to do is a work in your heart. As you pray for that other person to change, maybe he wants to do some change in you. As you're praying about this sin, and you just want, and I never want to do it again, and this thing, and... And he wants to do a work in your heart where you actually depend on him to break you from that. I don't know what he's doing at each one of your hearts, but are you ready? Because every faith journey requires preparation. Some of you got questions for God. And you feel like, I won't believe in him until he answers those questions. And he's not obligated to answer your questions. And maybe he's got you in a waiting time period where you realize he's God, you're not. And in order for you to believe in him, he doesn't have to become who you want him to be. So he's got you waiting. Where are you at in your faith journey? See, waiting can be one of the best places you could ever be. Because it's there he prepares your heart for what's going to happen. And we don't know what was going on in each one of the two million people that were happening there today. Just like I can't know what's going on in the hundreds of people that are listening to these words right now. But you know. And I know they all saw the same thing. For three days they sat there and they looked at the Jordan River. Jordan River normally is not that intimidating. It's only about 100 feet across. But this wasn't a normal day. This was in the spring. It was flood season. Joshua chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us that at this time, it was at flood stage. And that happens all during the harvest. And what that means is that, that snow has melted up in the mountains that run into the Jordan. And it's been raining. The spring rains come down, just like we are used to spring rains coming down. And what happens is it overflows the banks. And it multiplies the width. Some people guesstimate, they don't know for sure, that it might have been as long as a a mile wide. And it's increased current because of all the water that's flowing through it. And so what they're staring at, when they look at the Jordan, they're staring at an impossible obstacle. And they've got a decision to make. Because they're going to look at it, we can't build a boat and go across, our enemies are right on the other side. Jericho's right on the other side. And so we make ourselves vulnerable if we start trying to do some kind of bridge thing here. We cannot do this. And that's where they're at in their faith journey, is coming to the realization where what they're about to do and try to do is impossible. And let me tell you, that's true with anything you're going to try that requires faith. It doesn't matter if it's as simple as love your neighbor as yourself. You can't do that on your own. You need God to do that. It doesn't matter if it's as complex as forgive others as you've been forgiven. This is all scripture stuff. You're, you're commanded to do that. You can never do that. To forgive the way that God forgives you As far as the east is from the west, you'll never bring it up again? Really? You see, we can't do those things. But God commands us to do those things, and they require faith in him because he can. What the Israelites have to decide at this moment is, we're going to come to the conclusion this is impossible. Does that mean it can't be done, or does it just simply mean we can't do it? 
Because if it means that we can't do it, then the question then becomes, do we turn around then because it can't be done? Or do we believe that there is one that can? And so we trust him. That's where he has them for this three-day time period. And so it doesn't matter what kind of faith step God asks you to take, whether it's like Noah, and he says, you know, it's not raining, and I haven't seen rain in these parts before. However, I'd like you to build a huge boat because it's going to flood, and I want you to have a floating boarding studio. So would you like drive that thing around for a little while, about 40 days or so? Really? Like, it sounds crazy. What if God asks you to do something that sounds ridiculous to you? Do you trust that he can do it? Do you believe him? What about when Peter's in a boat and he says, I want you to be closer to me, so step out. It's storming and all the circumstances would dictate you don't do that, but come on, come to me. You don't think they were prepared for those moments prior to that? And Joshua commands these people, consecrate yourselves, verse 5. And what he's talking about there is a spiritual preparation of the heart. Because what you're about to do, it's going to seem impossible to you. And any step that God's going to speak to your heart this morning, individually and even for us corporately, that's going to require faith will be impossible for us to do. And, and I think about when, when Chan and I, we were planting the church. And I remember when we first decided to do that, we were stoked. We were pumped. We were like so excited about it. I remember sitting in a room with a, a pastor. And I had other people speak into my life about planting a church before. And I thought, yeah, I probably should do that someday. But I wasn't even 30 years old, and I thought, I don't know much stuff. I've got to go like, either get more schooling, or maybe we'll go on the mission field, or we'll go to a church and be an evangelism pastor. We're thinking through all those things. And I sat down with a guy that was a, a lead pastor at a church, and I told him kind of what God was doing in my heart. And he said to me, it was kind of a smack in the face, he said, so are you trying to build up your resume, or are you going to step out and do what God's called you to do? And it kind of shocked me in a place of, I might not know how to plan a church, but if God's calling me to do that, that's, that's what I need to do. And so we started talking about that. People get excited about that for you. <laughs> it's like, oh, that'd be great. I'll pat you on the back and send you on your way. It's real exciting. And so we got into that excitement for a little while. Then we realized, uh, but what we want to do, we can't do. <laughs> because we could probably gather people together if we had decent music and give a decent talk. But what we wanted was we wanted a place where you could sense God was at work, that you knew he was there. And that where people's lives would be changed. That means lost people would trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. That means that found people would take another step in their faith journey. And whatever that would mean, it would mean for like business executives, they would begin to use their business as a platform for the gospel rather than just for making money and providing for a family, which is all fine. But they would realize what it is to live on mission. That means for people that are employees, they would realize that God has them strategically placed in that business for a reason. Acts chapter 17, that means for people that are stay-at-home moms, they'd realize the opportunity to invest in and disciple their children. That means for people that are without work, they would realize that they're at a waiting stage where God's doing a preparation in their hearts. And, and so we can't do that. I can never manufacture heart change. And so we began to beg God, God, will you do this? And you know what he did in those waiting times? As we looked at an impossible task, he began to build our faith. He actually did some things in those days before we even went to Little Rock, Arkansas, that would begin to build our faith that we go back to today. When we have a difficult faith decision to make, oftentimes we go back to those times where you put that stake in the ground and say, if he can do that, then we can trust him for this. I remember a time when God miraculously healed my wife. We go back to that all the time in our discussions in our home. Because if he can do that, then what does he want us to do next? We'll just do whatever you want us to do because at any moment, every breath is from you. And we look at those things. In the early days of planting the church and coming here and the, and the people that would come, and we started meeting, we didn't know hardly any people. We started meeting with 20 people in a home, 30 people in a home, and just sharing the vision, and people actually were excited about it. And people were talking about, let's do church like the Bible says, we should do church, we love one another, and serve one another, embrace one another, but for the sake of a community. How amazing would that be? And so I remember our first meeting, we were at the 
uh, Briar Creek Country Club, which got us a sense of humor, because I told everybody that we weren't going to be a club for Christians, <laughs> and the only place we could get to meet was a country club. And so, um, don't speak on a turn, Scott. Got it. Still learning that lesson. However, when we got there, I remember we had to rent the room, and uh, we didn't want people to think we came here because we couldn't get a job or something, <laughs> so we were trying to get their money. So we were kind of averse at passing a plate, and we put a box in the back of the room, and we just prayed like crazy, God, will you provide enough money to pay for this room? And after the folks that were counting the offering counted the offering, I got an email that said that we had $4 left. <laughs> Some of the sweetest $4 that were ever given to our church. It's amazing. God's preparing us for next faith journeys. We trust you're going to provide. That's the box is part of our story. And we were trusting him financially. We were trusting him to change lives. We were trusting him with the relationships. We were trusting him with all kinds of things. And then people started to come. I remember we did our first ever outreach. We showed a movie. And then afterwards, I shared the gospel. And I shared the gospel before. I was scared to death for some reason to share the gospel. I probably talked three times faster than I'm talking right now. And still people got saved. We had like 12 or 14 people trust Jesus as their Savior. I can't remember the exact number, but I remember it was like 12 or more people trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. He started doing the stuff we were asking him to do. And it was amazing. Then we were just off and running. We started meeting at the movie theater. People started coming. And some of you remember, like two or three years ago, we were at a place where it was like, all right, this facility's not working for us anymore. Uh, we had like six or 700 people at the time. I don't know how many people will be here today. It'll be more than that. And we did a project we called TBI, the Bridge Initiative, and we were raising money for land, lease, or a building. Many of you know, we bought a piece of property this past May. In fact, we've got a picture of it. For those of you who haven't been able to see it, we'll pop up here on the slide. Um, we're here at the movie theater right now. And if you pop out of there at the movie theater on Briar Creek Parkway, and then you turn left on Glenwood just minutes away, I think it's about three miles up here, is where uh, the piece of property is that we recently purchased. And we're excited because people have been doing work behind the scenes at our church, uh, getting permitting, doing all, all kinds of different stuff, uh, designers and different folks that are volunteering. And this is how we think we're going to use that property in the days ahead. Uh, this is Glenwood Avenue, kind of out here on the right, uh, where I'm moving this laser pointer around right there. If you come in to this property, you've got about 400 to 450 parking spots that we'll have out there in this these two boxes represent about 30,000 square foot of footprint space that are on there. And we believe that we're going to build a building there in the days ahead. We believe we're going to break ground in spring of 2013. And the building will look something like this. Conceptually, it probably won't be gray with blue windows. However, it gives you an idea of what the front of that building will look like. And to give you an idea, a glimpse too, of conceptually, we believe the inside of that building will look like. We've got a floor plan that we'll show you here where you come in up at the top of the screen. If you look, there's a commons area that we wrote out here that you can come into. And we've made some changes even from our leadership meetings we had a couple weeks ago. We're moving some bathrooms around doing some of that kind of stuff. But uh, what we've done is we try to provide a decent amount of common space because we know that sometimes the most significant thing God can do is somebody walks out of a service and someone says, can I pray for you? Or a small question that gets asked or even somebody just says, today's going to be fun. And it just changes our moods and changes sometimes our, our journey. And so we got some significant common space out here. And you come through, and it's going to come over to what we our children's space, if you have children to drop off. And you can drop them off. This is about a 10,000-square-foot building that we believe in Phase 1 will be a modular building. And it'll be right out here with some covered awning um, connecting those two. And then after you drop your kids off, if you have little ones, come back into the common space and into the auditorium, the worship center here which this one seats about 750 people. The room that you're sitting in right now, if you're in Theater 9, is 287 people. If you're in Theater 14, it's 287 people over there as well. This will be about 750, easily expandable to 1,000 in the back section here. 
It's kind of hard to see on this uh, two-dimensional picture, but the way that it lays out is this is a flat floor down here with chairs that can be moved for multi-purpose in this room. And in the back section, it is a lot like the room that we're sitting in, very slanted and goes up, uh, sloped seating. And so that's the facility that we're looking at as part of our story, where we're at. But let me give you a statement here that you'd be great to write down in your notes. It's just a facility. And what a facility is supposed to do is to facilitate. A facility is not the vision. A facility facilitates the vision. And we're not trusting God to give us a building. You know what we're trusting God for? More changed lives. And that's why we started the project we started called TBI a few years ago. Is because we wanted to see more changed lives. If you remember, we didn't have a project. We didn't have anything to show you. We didn't have thermometers up on the stage. That's not how we roll. We didn't have uh, whatever it is, a pew you could buy if you gave a certain amount of money or any of that kind of stuff. But people by faith in that part of our journey gave. And God did some significant things. But God was preparing many people's hearts. And I'm going to tell you, over the next nine weeks, we're going to go on a faith journey together as a church. On October 7th, we're going to launch a new campaign that we're going to call the 10X campaign. We're going to be wrapping up the, the bridge initiative earlier than we had planned. And we're going to, on November 4th, have a commitment Sunday, which is going to be a day where we put a stake in the ground and say that we're committed to the mission. And I invite all of you to be on that journey with us. And I don't know what God's going to do in every person's heart individually. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't know what's going on. But I know and I'm very confident that if you are fully surrendered to God, if you depend upon Him, it'll be scary. And it'll be something that's impossible. I think through when we did the TBI project, I remember there was one couple, they gave the largest gift that our church has ever received. uh, And they weren't even members of our church. (laughs) They had just started coming to our church and they saw one time that we put up on on the screen and said, hey, in order for us to reach the goal that we have for this project, we need a $100,000 gift. And they looked at each other and said, we're the ones that are supposed to give that. And they weren't just rich people that came to our church either. That meant emptying out their whole bank account. And God has since used that as part of their journey to take that couple onto the mission field. It's been amazing for them. I don't know what it means for you. And I don't know for sure what it means for my family. But I know that if we're surrendered to him, he's got a journey for us. And what we're going to do over the next nine weeks is we're going to talk about for the next three weeks some new values we have as a church. We're going to talk about who we are. And then after that, we're going to talk about what we do. About a five-week series. We talk about what it is that we do as a result of who we are. And so we invite each one of you to be a part of that. Some of you may just want to watch from the background for a while. That's fine. Some of you want to be actively involved. And the first people that are there in the journey of that, we invite you, we welcome you in that whole process. What does God want to do in your faith journey? And my hope for us as a church is that he will use something like this project as a catalyst in those things. But the question you have to ask today is just this. Are you ready? We believe God's going to do some significant things. Are you ready for what God wants to do in your life and in your journey as a result? Joshua says, consecrate yourself. Prepare yourselves to the Israelites. He knows God's going to do some things. He doesn't tell them what all that stuff is. He just says, consecrate yourselves. Be ready. Be spiritually prepared because every faith journey requires heart preparation. And not only that, every faith journey requires expectations. You've got to have some kind of expectations for what's going to happen. I remember a mentor of mine told me one time that if you're going to prepare and you're going to do all that stuff, you should expect God to do great things. You don't know what they are. And God doesn't promise results in the scripture. He doesn't say exactly what's going to happen as a result of your faithfulness or his power or any of those types of things. But he does say to trust him and expect to see him do stuff that you would never be able to ask or imagine. And Joshua tells these people, In Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, here's why you're supposed to consecrate yourself. Because tomorrow God's going to do amazing things. 
what are those amazing things? Well, first of all, we got to, I think, take a pause and say, we think things are amazing that are really not very amazing. Some of you watched football game yesterday, and maybe you saw that University of Louisiana Monroe beat Arkansas, the number eight team in the country, and who knew there was a team called University of Louisiana Monroe, right? And we go, that's amazing. That's not amazing, okay? That's not what amazing means here. There's a Hebrew word behind this word that's translated amazing, or some of your texts may say uh, wonders. He's going to do wonders amongst us. It's the closest word that the Old Testament has to what we call in the New Testament a miracle. What Joshua's telling the people is that God's going to do a miracle. And what a miracle is, is not just something, wow, it's kind of awe-inspiring. A miracle is something that can only be explained by God. So only God could have done this thing. <laughs> you know what? God didn't make University of Louisiana Monroe be Arkansas. I don't know if they played better defense or turnover. I don't know what happened in that game. But I know that God didn't make that happen. God can make things happen that you and I can never do. And so when we stare into these impossible circumstances like forgiving as we've been forgiven, seeing a marriage reconciled, seeing addictions broken, seeing a lost person, you say, they would, not, they would never trust Jesus. Trust Jesus? That's a miracle. That's God doing the one thing that only he can do, which is change a human heart. That's amazing things. And I don't know, maybe God will never change another life. But I'm hoping he will. And I'm praying he will. And the question comes down for me and for all of you that I put out there, will you trust him? Will you believe him? And I know it's hard. I was talking with my five-year-old daughter the other day. And uh, she trusted Jesus as her Savior. I believe it was genuine. And we were talking, we were having a spiritual conversation at the end of the night. And I was sitting on the bed and she said, Dad, I just don't know if God's real. Alarms start to go off, right? I'm not saying anything. It's like, she's going to be an atheist. What's going to happen here? She's not going to love God, all this kind of stuff. And, and she sa- I said, why is that, honey? She says, well, he can't, I can't see him. And that's true, isn't it? We, we don't get to see him. But I don't know what to say at this moment. So I'm just kind of looking at her like, and, and go on. You, know, <laughs> you, you talk for a little while while I try to formulate something here that makes sense in my head. And she said, like, you're sitting here right now. He's not sitting here right now. And I'm still like in pause mode. And so I just decided to let her run with this deal for a little while. And she starts to explain to me omnipresence, which is interesting because she's five. And she doesn't really know that word. But she said, well, I mean, I know he's here in this room. And he's also at Mimi's house at the same time. However, I just can't see him. And isn't that hard for us sometimes? Because that's true. Right? We don't see Jesus in flesh walking with us, and we don't see God. And you know what? The people of Israel in that day, they didn't have to see God either. They didn't see him at all. God didn't show up and grab their hand and walk them across the water. What they saw was the effects of God. And you know, that's what faith is like. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us what faith is. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, he says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see well, that's interesting. So how do I become certain of the things I do not see? Be certain. Mm. Like, how do I make myself be certain of something I don't see? See, God gives us these wonderful gifts. They're called miracles. And we don't see him, but we see the effects of him. And I can look out and I can see some of you. Or Ted, just say, amen. Ted, how different are you today than you were the day that I met you? And I see other people. Jonathan, the, the, by faith, decided to come here and be a part of this church. And sitting over there by Gino, who places faith in Jesus at a Christmas Eve service. I mean, see, I, that's the evidence, is when I look around and I see changed lives. And that's what God does. And you look at it, he's doing miracles when he has them cross the sea. But from the crossing of the sea to the cross of Jesus Christ, he's doing miracles. 
And you see it all throughout the Old Testament. You see it when Elijah fights the battle, the false prophets, fire comes from heaven. You see people being provided for in miraculous ways. Maybe your story intersects with some of these. You see a guy getting saved by a mouth of a fish (laughs) one time. And maybe you don't believe that one. But you know what? There's one that if you don't believe it, you're totally hopeless. It's the cross of Christ. Talk about the ultimate miracle is that Jesus Christ would take upon your sin and my sin so that we could have a relationship with God, that he's sinless, but then he dies a criminal's death on a cross, and it atones for, it pays for all the sins of humanity. How amazing is that as a miracle? But you know what the miracle really is of the cross? It continues today. You see, it wasn't something that just happened 2,000 years ago. Some of us, we act like God's not as powerful today as he was back then. Like, yeah, maybe back then we kind of believed that he probably parted the waters or something happened. Maybe there's an earthquake or we try to explain it or whatever the deal is. Maybe not the fish thing, the Jesus thing, because we have to or else we're in a lot of trouble. And we kind of think through this stuff. But he doesn't do that kind of stuff now. How did he do that kind of stuff? It was through his power. He's not getting, like, tired or something, okay? He's not running out of energy as the days go by, God, in this deal. He's eternal, so that's not really happening to him. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says he has all of God's power. I love how the King James says the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18. Not just because it says the word spake, but uh, it says in, in the older King James, it says, and Jesus came and spake unto them. But it says here, spoke, saying, all power. Some of your translations may say authority, same thing. It's been given to me. Then he tells them to go make disciples. And then what happens? He gives them that power. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And you wait here until you receive power. What's that power? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the very thing we've been talking about in our series Supernatural that we did through the summer. We talk about God is in If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. You should be different. That's God's power at work in us. You know how we see that? He starts to crush the list. It's in Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. Envy, discord, jealousy, sexual morality, all that stuff. So we weed it out of our lives because he's faithful to do a work in our lives until the day of Christ Jesus when he comes back. And completed, he keeps changing our lives. And you know what the list becomes? Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, love, joy, peace, patience, that's transformation. And that's what we start to see in the lives of people. And so he's still doing those miracles. It's the miracle of the cross that happens every day where we could never do it. Well, you can never, you can't willpower your heart into being at peace with God, not even with yourself. Only God can do that, so we have to trust him. And that's what we're trusting him to do. We think God's given us a mission that's very clear as a church. He says it so emphatically that it's in every gospel. And Matthew, it's therefore, go make disciples. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And by the way, teach them everything I taught you. And here's the promise. I'll be with you through the whole process. It was the Ark of the Covenant crossing the water. It was God's presence leading them. That's where I'm mission with him. He's with us. And you know what he says in Mark? In Mark he says, preach good news to all nations everybody you come into contact with and luke he says it differently and he says it to make it very clear that it's not dependent upon us it's going to happen it's whether we're going to be part of the journey or not he says repentance and forgiveness will be preached to all nations and john he says in a very unique way in john chapter 20 and verse 21 he says just as the father sent me jesus speaking so i am sending you and he sends us out every morning to come into contact with people that are divine appointments do we see it are we ready what's happening and you know what else he promises he promises his power acts chapter 1 verse 8 and you will receive power it's the holy spirit will come upon you and you'll be my witnesses that's why you get that power it's not for your own self-consumption you don't have love joy peace patience kindness that fruit because it's for you it's because we're in a hungry world that needs that so when they see it in you then you offer it to them 
And so we're trusting God to do that, to continue to change lives. As leaders in our church, we've been talking about and been praying about asking God to do some things beyond what we could possibly do. And we've been asking him to multiply our impact as a church to a 10 times impact. We're calling it 10x. And we believe that when we move into that building that I showed you, that we'll easily the first day probably have 1,000 people that are there. And we want that to be multiplied to 10,000 changed lives. Now, you can look at that building and figure out real quick, that doesn't hold 10,000 people. We're not talking about just 10,000 people attending a Southbridge service someday. We're talking about 10,000 people's lives transformed as a result of you. It's not dependent on us putting on a better show or doing any of that kind of stuff. What we're talking about is becoming more intentional about people than we've ever been before. What that means for us as a church, it means that as a staff and as elders, we take very seriously Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, the work of the pastors, the elders, evangelists, is to equip the body to do works of service so they can do the works. They're talked about in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says that you're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do God's work for him that he's predetermined from before the beginning of time. And what does that mean? That means living on, as you live on mission, making disciples, that you're intentional about the relationships with those people that you come into contact with. You'd lead lost people to Jesus Christ, found people that are disenfranchised or disconnected, that you'd help them see what it is to truly trust Jesus Christ in a daily mission that they've been given. We all have our job. It's been assigned to us, and it's serious. And so what we're asking is, is there every person in those first thousand people that we have, is they would be serious about ten people in their lives. That's why we're calling it 10X. Ten relationships where you're very strategic about loving those people, sharing with those people, serving those people, praying for those people, seeing some of those people come to Jesus, seeing some of those people reconnected with him, seeing many of those people take a next step in their faith journey, transformed lives. And so the question becomes, who are your ten? And you pray for your ten, and you serve your ten, and you love your ten, and you share with your ten. And that's what we're asking God to do. But here's the thing. We don't know what he's going to do. I think about Peter, when Peter, he was there when Jesus gives the commission, when he says, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you, go make disciples in all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Peter's the guy who denied Jesus, and he said, well, I'm going to give you the power, that's what I promised you, and I'm going to give you my presence, lo, I'm with you always, and power's going to come upon you. And then he preaches on the day of Pentecost. He has no promise when he preaches on the day of Pentecost that 3,000 people will come to Jesus. In fact, for all he knows, he might be stoned and drunk out of town, just like Paul was when he tried to take over a city sometimes. But he knows that God will be with him, and he knows that God's doing a work in him, and that God's going to do a work through him. That's why I go back to the passage of Scripture that I taught when we launched this church, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever dream. And how does he do it? According to his power that's at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. The question is, are you ready? Let's pray. Father, we come before you. Please be our guide. Just like the Ark of the Covenant led them across that water, Father, will you lead us? Don't let us get ahead of you. Let's keep in perspective who you are, what you do, how you do it in us and through us. Father God, I pray if there's any here that don't know your son, Jesus Christ, to hear about walking on a faith journey might seem so foreign to them. I pray today they'd trust your son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. They'd acknowledge their sin and need for you. I pray that those that know Jesus, you'd give them sensitive eyes to see people around them that maybe need to talk further. I pray for each one of us here that you'd make us intentional about the mission that you've given us to reach this world for you and that you'd give us the city to start. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.